That's slightly scary, the beeps, but we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, I don't know, do you remember where you were when the uh, Twin Towers came down? Do you, do you remember that kind of significant moment? Uh, where was it, you know, the, the 11th of September, 2001? You see, the days that define lives, they're quite rare, aren't they? They kind of defined our generation. But when those days happen, they're kind of etched on your mind, can't they? You can't get rid of them. I remember my grandma was saying about the 4th of May, 1945. It's VE Day. No longer would she be cowering underneath the stairs when the German bombers came over to bomb the city she lived in in Exeter. It was a great day. It, it defined her life. It, she lived in that freedom from then on. Sporting occasions, they kind of define lives. Who can forget Super Saturday? That was a good day, wasn't it? Just a few months ago, that was a pretty special time. It's kind of etched on our mind. Personal occasions define lives. Let me just check the date. 28th of June, 1997. That's when I got married. I had to write that one down. There we go. Actually, it's quite easy to remember because we had a son a few years later. Zachary was born on the same day. So that's good. Perhaps you'll remember different things, though. You know, your first job, the you know, day you got the job, maybe even your first kiss or something like that. First house, first car, first promotion. You see, days that define our lives, they're quite rare, but when they happen, it really kind of etches on our mind, doesn't it? And perhaps no less definitive is the day that we're reading about here. Um, it's the 18th of December, 520 BC. And uh, on this date, God's appointed messenger, Haggai here, speaks not only one message to the people of God, but two messages here. And this, these two messages would be etched on their minds Forever. The first message comes, you see, in verse 10 through to verse 19. And the second message from verse 20 through to verse 23. But, if you weren't here before, let's just kind of have a look back over Haggai. What we've learned so far in just the, the two, two weeks we looked at it. So Haggai has returned with the people of God uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, sorry, from Babylon in exile with the Babylonians. Back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And uh, there's been a snag, though. In their rebuilding, there have been a, quite a lot of local opposition from various leaders. So they'd done a bit, and then they stopped. Sixteen years they'd stopped. And in chapter one of Haggai, we learned that God urged them. He said, you know, give careful thought to your ways. Start my work again, if you like. Because what they'd done is they prioritised their own houses, their own lives, their own reputation, rather than God's house, the temple. God's uh, life amongst the people and his reputation in the neighbouring nations. But the great news of Haggai, unlike a, a lot of books in the, in the Bible, the people listened. They were obedient. They began to heed God's warnings and, as a result, they began work again on rebuilding the temple. And God, in his kindness, blesses them with his wonderful presence but he also, as we saw last week, grants them peace. We could do with some of that upstairs. No, I'm joking. And the same is for us. As Christians, we recognise as we turn back to God, as the people did in Haggai, as we repent, God is very kind and, and longs to bless us as we trust in him. He blesses us, first and foremost, with the presence of his spirit, as he does here. But also... Through the forgiveness of sins, he blesses us with that eternal peace that is offered us in Jesus' death on the cross. Last week, I guess, was a gentle warning to those um, who will not turn, if you like, 
back to God, who will not repent and turn and, and trust in him. But for many of us, it, we, we saw that, I guess, as a great comfort, because we can know God's wonderful peace and the forgiveness of sins available in Jesus. But now we get to chapter 2, verse 10. And I guess in some ways this is a rather discouraging message for us all to hear. We know it's delivered, on the, we see there, on the 24th day of the ninth month. And that's the Babylonian kind of lunar calendar. So that works out roughly 18th of December, 520 BC. We think just under four months since Haggai's first message back in chapter one. Now the crux of this third message is this. And I've put it down on your sheets. It's coming up there if you want. And it is that the Lord promises to bless his defiled people. We'll come to what that means in a minute. Uh, but that's, it. that's kind of where it's kind of heading. Let me introduce though, uh, at this point with a little bit of a story from my, uh, my kind of childhood, if you like. I had a friend. And um, he was so clumsy. Uh, his defence was, in his clumsiness, that he attracted destruction. I was slightly sympathetic because when we were about 18, we were driving our parents' cars around the countryside near us. A sheep walked out in front of his car and his mum's car was written off. The sheep died as well. But, um, you know, it, it, everything he did seemed to attract destruction. I was less sympathetic when he took my brand new mountain bike at the age of 18, cycled off a cliff into a reservoir. It was a great deal of fun but it absolutely trashed my mountain bike. Now, whatever my friend did see to compensate for his clumsiness, he could never wipe away, take away the destruction that was his life. He was just known for it. That's what he was. Now, it's a little simplistic and trivial, but it might help us understand how God viewed the people in Haggai's day. He's referring to here. They were essentially spiritually clumsy. That is, they were making a mess of their lives and whatever they were doing in, that was good in the eyes of God, that's rebuilding a temple, it's a good thing, that didn't erase all the mess of their lives, the godlessness. And we see this godlessness in this first section because godlessness is another way, of, well, I put the term down that's used here, it's a defilement. That's the word that's being used here. It's a godlessness. See, the problem was God's people were defiled. And note here that, I don't know if you remember that, but throughout the book of Haggai, the word has come to the leaders, Zerubbabel, it's come to Joshua, son of, son of uh, Jehozadak, and so on. But it's never come directly to the people. But now God is speaking directly to the people. So look at, cast your eyes down, verse 11, you'll see it there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. He's saying to the people, ask the priest what the Lord says. Then we get this funny issue in verse 12. Let's look at that again. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his, his, of his garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil or other food, does it become consecrated? Well, what's going on there then? Because it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? A little bit different. Well, according to the law of God, I hope we're going to have a few things coming up here on, your, on the outline, if that's helpful. If you just go through, yeah, that one and the next one. There are three statuses, yeah, one more. Three statuses, brilliant. That within the Old Testament law, how God viewed things, if you like. Everybody, everything, everything you could touch was either one of these three things. That is holy or consecrated like God, this end. Clean, and that was quite a neutral state, so land was clean. Um, 
you know, like bread and stew, as is mentioned here, clean, if you like, neutral in a sense, um, or unclean. And we'll come to what that looks like in a moment. And the way it worked was this. If something that is holy, consecrated, set apart for God, if you like, comes into contact with something that is unclean, just go on one, it will then become profaned, is a word that's used in the Bible a lot. And it goes down, it becomes clean. That's how it's viewed in its status. If something's clean comes into contact with something that is unclean, it is then Polluted, and you see that kind of arrow go down there. And the way that that kind of decline is happening within Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, is that it, it happens through the process of either sin, if we put that down again, um, or imperfection, imperfection in, it, in whatever it may be um, of the body or something else. Now, we haven't got time to go into all of this and what it kind of looks like, but what is critical, absolutely critical for, for us to understand, is that something that is unclean, cannot come into contact with a holy and perfect God. And we see numerous examples in the Old Testament. It was just destroyed. Anything that came into contact with a pure and holy God was destroyed. And that provides us and the people here with a huge problem. How can you move from becoming being unclean or clean to begin being holy so you can enter into the presence of God, so you can be a friend of God, so you can have a relationship with God. Well, let's reverse the way around of going. Firstly, you need to be cleansed, so you become from unclean to clean. We put that arrow again, there's another one there. And then secondly, you need to be sanctified from clean to holy. Now, all that kind of language is used in the Bible a lot, and I'm not going to go into it in detail. But it explains, if you like, the order in which we need to go in order to be right with God. So that we can spend eternity with God. The only way you can go about that direction is through, if you put it up there next hour, is through sacrifice. That was what was illustrated in the Old Testament sacrifices within the temple. Now that is the background, if you like, to what's going on here in verse 12. It's pretty extraordinary, I know. But if a person is carrying, let's just go back to the illustration in verse 12 carrying in the fold of his garment some consecrated meat, that is meat that had been blessed by the priest and been made holy in the sight of God to be offered as a sacrifice. If that meat, if the fold of, in, that, in that robe, if the fold of that robe then touches some bread or something clean, if you like, does the fold of the, uh, the robe transmit the holiness of that meat to something that is clean, like the bread or the stew, Okay. That's the question, and the answer is an obvious no, it doesn't. Why? He's saying, basically, holiness, being right with God, is not infectious. It doesn't catch like that. It doesn't spread like that. That's what he's saying, which is somewhat disappointing, isn't it, when you hear it? It would be quite nice if it did, but it doesn't. And then look at, why don't you go to the second question, verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? And the obvious answer is yes, the priests reply. It becomes defiled. You see, a dead body is, is unclean ceremonially in the, Old Testament, in the Old Covenant law. And if you touch a body, you then go down that, you become polluted, if you like. And, and it status to, uh, to, un, to uncleanliness before God. The point of these two verses is, just to kind of summarise, is sin spreads and holiness doesn't spread. Sin corrupts everything else, like a disease. Turn to verse 14, have a look. 
Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and the nation in my sight. He's used this illustration to describe the people. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, it's defiled, he's saying. In other words, he's, he's illustrating the fact that the sin of the people is corrupting everything that they can do. And it may mean the people that assume that, hey guys, if we rebuild this temple, this is a good thing before God, and, and it will make up for all the other stuff that, where we've ignored God and rebelled against God. Perhaps they deceive themselves that a few hours' labour cutting some stones and rebuilding a house for God will make up for the other stuff that, where they've ignored God, for their sin. And God is saying through Haggai here to the people of God and to us today, that is not how it works. It's the other way around. The sin in our lives, our rejection of God, spreads to pollute everything in our lives. Now, why is that so important for you and me today? Because I guess some of you, and definitely the people you know, will look at God in this way. You'll say, look, my good stuff equals 51% of my life, and the bad stuff equals 49%. And that, that's, kind of, that's me, okay? For you, you're probably in the 60-40 range, you know. But you know, work out where you are. You know, 60 good, 40 bad. And that's how you think it works out for you. Well, that's how many people think it works out, doesn't it? But you see, God, even back in Exodus, just said, hey, that's not how it works. He called God's people in Exodus to be a holy nation, to be set apart for God in every area of life. You see, any sin that we have in our lives, any rejection of God, corrupts everything of our lives. It isn't made up for by the fact that, you know, I might have helped an old lady across the road earlier. You know, that's going to tip the balance between me and God. It doesn't work like that, Haggai's saying. Even if you come to church or you build a temple. No, you don't tip the balance. God expects us to be completely holy. To be perfect in his sight. And the issue is the problem isn't answered here. It's presented Clearly the sacrifices on offer in the, on the altar of the temple, they're not going to change the situation. Even when they built this massive building, they need some sort of sacrifice that will completely cleanse them. Make them perfectly right and holy before a holy God. Let me try and illustrate this a bit if I can. Can you imagine if you're going out for dinner? And uh, you think you've got ready because 99% of your clothing is clean. But on your shoulder, there's a big lump of mud where your, you know, your housemate has very lovingly just sort of, ah, that's a, that'll spoil the meal, won't it? You know, and popped it there. You, you can't assume that you're ready to go out with, you know, with someone to have a nice meal if 99% of your clothing is clean. But yet there's this huge lump of mud on your shoulder. It just doesn't work like that, does it? The clean bits don't make up for the dirty bits, do they? Let's think of your health. Let's say you're going to go out and play, a, you know, let's say a game of rugby. You can't say I'm ready to play rugby by the fact that I've only got one broken leg and every other bone in my body's fine. It doesn't make up for it, does it? It doesn't work like that. The good bits of your body don't make up for the bad that your fibula is sort of pointing out in a wrong direction. It, it just doesn't work like that. 
Take the, you know, the picture of the law. You know, let's say someone's done a really bad crime, a murderer. Okay? He approaches the judge and says, yeah, I did murder someone. Okay? But I didn't park on a double yellow line all last year. That's all right, isn't it? I've kept all the rest of the law, but not this part of the law. That's fine. No, of course it's not. You need to keep the whole law. You see, with God, it can't be about the good making up for the bad. Like a pair of scales. But that's the way that most of us intuitively think, don't we? And the message of Haggai here is God doesn't work like that. Which means that you and I have a serious problem, don't we? We need a sacrifice that can cleanse us from the sin that corrupts everything in our lives. And I want to clarify, because the problem is presented but not kind of spelled out, I want to clarify that we have a sacrifice that has cleansed us completely from our sin. Hebrews describes him as a once-for-all sacrifice, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, his sacrifice is the sacrifice that can take me from an unclean state before God to being utterly blemish-free, perfect in his sight, even though we sin. And as we struggle with our sin, we also, I guess we need to remember that the Bible describes the way that we live. That can be a sacrifice of praise, can't it? We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We'll look at that Romans 12 later in the year. But we need to be clear that that sacrifice is a humble and a gracious and a grateful response to the once for all sacrifice that has cleansed us and made us right with God. And I guess, I I hope that sacrifice should draw us to want to respond to Christ now, today. So the evangelism that we do, it is good, it's a great thing to do, you know, to tell our friends about Jesus Christ. But that is not going to bring us from an unclean state to a holy state. That is what Jesus has done. It's a great thing to do to tell our friends about Jesus. It's a, it's a sacrificial response, but it's not a saving sacrifice. Um, serving at church can sometimes trip us up as well, can't it? You know, I came and I, I came an hour early. You know, you want to brush your halo at that point and polish up, you know. You know but that doesn't make up for the bitterness in your heart for coming early. The bitterness in your heart that's been dealt with as Jesus was punished on a cross for your sin in your place. You know, home group attendance when you've had a shattering week and you, you've got to get there, you know, you want to get there and learn more from Romans and, and so on. You know, that itself, could, it doesn't make up for the lust in your heart and the fantasies in your mind. God is not like that. Our service of him is not a question of tipping the balance for our eternal life. But you see, for a Christian, this is not an issue of salvation because we're saved by Christ and Christ alone. He's the only one that can take us from an unclean to a holy state. This is an issue of service and therefore blessing. God's people were defiled as we are by our sin and our imperfection. But the great news is we can be made clean, right with God by a sacrifice. His name is Jesus. So God's people will defile, but very quickly now. Why don't you just cast your eyes down to verse 
15 to 17, because he wants to remind the people very soberingly that they've also been judged as well. Look at verse 15. Give careful thought from this day on. Consider how things were once before the stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple when everyone came and there was, they didn't have enough and he blighted the work and the mildew. He didn't turn to me, declares the Lord at the end of verse 17. What he's saying there is sometimes God has had to shout in his loving discipline to us and say, look, you need to turn to me. If you want my blessing, you need to turn to me today. And we, I guess, as Christians, if we're here to, as Christians today, we will know the times when God has, in his loving discipline, brought us up in our lives. And it hurts, doesn't it? However, the reminder and the warning leads to obedience and leads to blessing. Cast your eyes down to verse 18 and 19. You'll see there, God's people were blessed. Let me read again, just at the end there. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation, essentially saying the rebuilding uh, was, of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. He's saying you've now been building for three months and I can see you've been serious about that and you've turned your, your lives back to me. So now look what he says. What a great promise at the end of verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. Can I say, if you're a non-Christian here, that is, one, you're incredibly welcome. It's a great place to be, to come and ask questions and find out more. But can I lovingly say, this blessing that's been spoken of here, you will never know unless you turn yourself back to God and say, I've been ignoring you, sorry. I want to trust in your son, Jesus. You will never know these blessings. And can I say, lovingly as possible, they are the greatest blessings you will ever know. See, to be a Christian means that you've discovered that, that Christ has been obedient in the way that I have never been obedient. And if we come to him, his obedience is counted as if it were ours. And therefore, the blessings of Jesus' obedience, of being in perfect relationship with his Father, all those blessings are poured out on the Christian. It's unimaginable blessings. And if you want to read more about them, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 12, is just the most amazing list of blessings that Christians receive. Even though we're blessed in Christ, there's still this principle that we're blessed in our daily relationship with God. It's not a mechanistic thing. You know, if you do this good thing, God will bless you there. If you do that good thing, God will bless you. It's not that mechanistic here. But if we are obedient now, we will know... Blessing in this life, but ultimately blessing in eternal life with God. Now the blessing in this life just may be the joy of being obedient and knowing that you're in good relationship with your Father God. That's a great thing. It's a great blessing because you know the other side, especially if you're a Christian here, you know it's a terrible thing not to be in good relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because you can be burdened with guilt in that situation. You know, you can't pray, you can't read the Bible because you, you feel a sense of guilt about it. The joy of repenting itself is a great blessing. In Haggai, the context is temple building. For us, that temple building involves building God's place, his church. Look at the people around you. 
That's what we're involved in. That's the blessing that we can be involved in. So question, are we going to be obedient in our temple building or not? You know, you can't be a, just, a, I guess, a secret servant of God. If you begin to pray for individuals and opportunities, if you're, a build, if you're obedient in this kind of temple building business, we have the promise of God that he blesses those who are obedient supremely in heaven, yes. But there does seem to be this principle in Haggai that there, show, that there is a blessing today that you and I can receive if we, if we long to serve him in building his church. So firstly, the Lord promises to bless his defiled people and you'll be very thankful that the second point is much briefer. So we'll get to the second point. The Lord promises to restore his chosen servant. It's a much shorter passage, verse 20 to 23. Now, it's a bit extraordinary here, but I'll just spend a little bit of time if I can. Chief among the promised blessings of verse 19 actually is a Messiah. How do you see that? Let me show you. In these last few verses of the book, the Lord addresses, you see, Zerubbabel. I say that confidently, but I don't got a clue how you pronounce it. But there we go, Zerubbabel in particular. And, and again, he uses like a, do you see that back in chapter 2, verse 6? He uses this illustration of shaking the heavens and the earth. Basically, that's pointing us to, as I spoke about last week, of a final judgment day. God will shake the heavens and the earth, he's saying. And on that day, I mean, there's lots written there, but he was that none of the world empires will need to be considered. They, they will have all ended. All the superpowers are gone. And now the Lord will, will rule and direct his people individually. And at that time, he says in verse 23, look at it. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. It's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? What he's saying there. Now, some people are confused about the language of Zerubbabel in this last verse because we don't really know what God did with Zerubbabel after this point. That is, in the historical records, he vanishes pretty much. There's all sorts of speculation, but, you know, he seems to vanish. But if the Lord made Zerubbabel, like he says here, see what he calls him? His signet ring. Has anyone got a signet ring? I was going to use it as an illustration. Uh, you know, one of those little rings he wear on, it's kind of a family thing. Rob, if you go on, you must have one. It's not on. Oh, never mind. I thought Rob would be an absolute certainty there, but never mind. You know, do you realise what the high honour that is? To carry the signet ring of the Lord. You gave a signet ring um, as a mark of honour. A, a dignitary would give it to a king, if you like. An important minister to show his confidence in the authority of that person. If you were to turn, though, back to Jeremiah 22, you realise that God had actually pronounced a, a curse on Zerubbabel's family, on his grandfather, Je, King Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah at the time. And he even said, he had said to his grandfather that, that if he were a signet ring, he would th- have thrown him off. That it, all his authority would go. But now you see what's happening. Through Zerubbabel, God is picking up that royal line, that, that kingly line, through the line of uh, Jehoiakim and to David. And he's saying, I'm now going to put you on. I'm going to give you that authority. I'm going to have confidence in that authority that you, I'm giving you. And when you go on to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, 
you will see in that extended line of names that lead to one man born in a stable in, in Bethlehem. You will see the names are rubbable. Because you feel like God is putting on his signet ring. He's saying, I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to restore that kingly line. You see, the promises that are made here about Zerubbabel, I guess they're not really made personally to him, but, but as heir to David's throne. He is, it's a bit of a term, but he's kind of messianic. He's pointing towards the Messiah. He's a descendant of David, a, a guardian of the chosen people. He's a rebuilder of God's house. He's the restorer of the dignity of the line of David. In, in all those ways, the rubble is actually a, what you might call a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. He, he's pointing us to Jesus because Jesus is the one who restores ultimate dignity to the line of King David. He's the ultimate builder of God's house. In everything that we see as rubble here, Christ fulfills it all. God will make him like his signet ring finally. Zerubbabel is just the beginning because we see the Messiah is coming, Haggai says. And it's restored uh, in that line, that family line to Christ. So ultimately God's people can be rescued by a suffering servant who will die on a cross. And God chooses and it happens. And it's a stark warning at the end of this little book, isn't it? If you have any doubt that God can give or withhold blessing and judgment, I guess your eyes should be really wide open right now. God chooses his people and nothing can stand in his way. And this becomes the the ultimate act of power at the end of this book. The signet ring goes on and it leads straight to Christ, our Saviour. It's restored the line of David, and has brought us the opportunity for salvation. I've got about three minutes, so I'm going to conclude um, just with a kind of few pointers, if you like, of what we've learned from the book of Haggai. So we don't really finish it with a kind of, oh, that was a good, I've kind of like got Haggai sorted. He can even say the words are rubbable now, you know. You don't want to kind of tick it off and, and say, ah, oh, that's all I know. Let me just finish with a couple of things, a couple of reminders of what I think we should have learned. The first one is this. Let us not be marked by godless selfishness. Our generosity, you see, is not measured in how much we give, but in how much we keep. And we know that from Jesus' own teaching in Mark 12. Some of us are looking at it um, uh, at El Sodeli on on Wednesday. Because the widow there, she gave all she had. And I, have, I, I guess you, you look at that from chapter 1 and the priorities that were being made between the housing that they were putting all their money into and the neglect of God's work in the temple. I, you've got to ask yourself the question from chapter 1, I think. What are you keeping your money for? There's no kind of cash machines in your coffins. That's the first point. Second point is, let us know that God will bless the obedient I do wonder sometimes whether we actually kind of are wondering whether to turn that little portion of our lives back to God because we can't see the real blessing of it. We can't see the joy of it. But know from here in Haggai that God promises and gives blessing. Ultimately, through his gift of peace, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is blessing 
in obedience. Let's turn our whole lives back to Jesus. And thirdly, I think the warnings come really from uh, chapter 2 throughout the end, to the end really, of that shaking the heavens and the earth. That is that let us be warned that the judge is coming. If you were in any doubt, if you need to be prepared, be prepared, because a judge is coming one day. Let me end with this very small illustration. John Wesley was a very famous preacher back in the seven, uh, late, early 1800s. Sorry, He lamented over it. He set up the Methodist church with his brother Charles. He was greatly concerned at the growing godliness, godlessness amongst the people of his church. And uh, what would happen is he, many people would come to faith. He'd, he'd kind of taught them and they'd listened to God's word that they worked hard and, and in working hard they'd become very wealthy and the Methodist church had huge amounts of money and the people there were very wealthy. But he said this, as a potential millionaire who gave all his money away, John Wesley said this at the age of 84, I charge you in the name of God, do not increase your substance that it comes daily or yearly, let it go. Otherwise you lay up treasures on earth And this our Lord flatly forbids as murder and adultery. By doing it, therefore, you would treasure up for yourselves wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. But suppose it were not forbidden. How can you, on principle of reason, spend your money in a way which God may possibly forgive instead of spending it in a manner that he will certainly reward? You'll have no reward in heaven for what you lay up. You will for what you lay out. Every pound you put into an earthly bank is sunk, and it brings no interest above. But every pound you give is put into the bank of heaven. It will bring glorious interest, yea, and such as will be accumulating to all eternity. It's quite sobering, isn't it? And yet I do wonder the priorities of my own life, and uh, I just open the question out to all of us, that we consider our ways carefully. Not just on the sheet of money. That's just one thing to end with. But our whole lives. That we turn back and seek the obedience that God longs for. And God longs to bless as well. Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we see the practical and radical call you gave to your people through the prophet Haggai. And Lord God, we do pray that by your spirit you would lovingly and also pointedly, I think, and tenderly, mercifully work in our lives to free us from our false lords. That we might give you praise and glory in our obedient lives with everything that we have, each day that we live. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.